You're listening to a podcast from River City Church of Jacksonville, Florida. For more audio and video podcasts, visit rccjacks.com. Good morning. Uh, um, yeah, I've got new glasses. And, um, I, uh, for the last year or maybe two years, I've been thinking to myself time and time again, I'd be reading something and I would think, I really don't like this new blurry font that everyone seems to be using these days on in books and newspapers and, uh, you know, internet stuff and ketchup bottles and whatever. And so I was like, yeah, it's time. I'm getting old. So I've got some new glasses. I'm not going to use them as some kind of like clever metaphor to like seeing. Oh no, I've got new glasses now. I can see right. You know, that's not. I'm not going to use that this week. Maybe in the future. <laughs> okay, so this is the first week of Advent, and Advent is the, the the season of anticipation and waiting. Anticipation for the birth of Jesus. That we we are waiting for Christmas. We're looking forward to Christmas. We're anticipating the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. And um, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at uh, four elements of, of that, of the anticipation, the waiting, and, and what Christmas really means. We're going to look at love. We're going to look at peace. We're going to look at joy. But today, we're going to look at hope. Okay. Uh, so let's pray uh, before we begin. God, you are good. God, you are so good to us. You are so faithful. And Jesus, you are hope. And so I pray right now that we would see you, we would know you, we would experience the hope of the gospel, the hope of you here today. Amen. Okay, so what is hope? What is hope? Hope is the expectation that something good is going to happen. That's what hope is. Hope is the expectation that something good is going to happen. Hope is not a wish, okay? Hope is not a wish or a want, okay? So hope is not a wish. Like, I, I wish the Jaguars would make it to the playoffs. I mean, that's, that's a wish. That's not a hope. I, um, a hope is, I think they will get to the playoffs, okay? That's an expectation. I think they will get to the playoffs, um, I'm probably wrong, but I think that. And um, a hope is not just a wish, it's a want. A hope is an expectation. A hope is an expectation that something good is going to happen. That's what a hope is. Hope does, does not deny the reality of the present. It just expects that something better is coming. Right? It just expects that something good is coming. And Advent is the season of hope. Advent is the season of expectation and waiting, of the anticipation of the good to come, the Savior to be born, the kingdom here. So we're going to read from Luke 2, uh, from verse 8. I can now read it. Um, here we go. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. 
you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, uh, suddenly there was with the, the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see, right here in, in, in these verses, hope is announced in a song. Hope is announced with this kind of spectacular um, interruption of the angels uh, coming to the shepherds. And, uh, you know, they're just going about their business. They're just going about their job. And there's this sudden interruption where hope comes announced in a song and in a fanfare and in a great kind of spectacle. Yeah? This is what happens here. The, the hope is announced. But you see, the hope isn't the fanfare. The hope isn't the spectacle. The hope isn't the angels and it isn't their song. The hope is a boy. The hope is a baby born in a manger, born and lying in a crib. Hope itself is not found in the fanfare and the spectacular. It's not found on the stage. It's not found in the lights. It's not found in in words and music and songs. Hope is found in a boy, in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And this is how hope chooses to come to our world. Announced, yes, with fanfare and spectacle, but the hope itself is not the fanfare and the spectacle. The hope itself is a boy. Hope chooses to come to this world as something small and fragile, as a baby. The hope of the world enters as something, or rather someone, who is helpless. Hope arrives helpless. Jesus came to be as fragile and as helpless as any of us. He was vulnerable and as exposed as any human being can be. He was hunted as a baby. He, he grew up his first few years as a refugee. He was defenseless to whatever the world would do. God became flesh and he put himself at the mercy of others. That is an incredible thing. That is incredible that God, the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful God would come and be human and flesh and a baby and be as vulnerable and as helpless as you or I. And this is how hope comes to us. Hope, when it comes to us, often comes as something small and fragile rather than a fanfare. And hope itself needs nurturing. Hope itself needs care. Hope itself is like a baby that needs looking after. So when hope comes to us, it comes to us as something that needs care, something that needs attention, something that needs growing, something that needs love and attention. And we often say, we often have this, we often use this phrase, a glimmer of hope, right? Yeah? Heard that phrase, a glimmer of hope. And a glimmer is, is the faint flickering lights. That's what a glimmer is. A glimmer is a faint flickering, almost, but not quite out, but still quite there, light. And when hope comes to us, hope comes to us in the midst of darkness, it often comes as a small flickering light, as a glimmer. Hope comes to us as a baby. So how do we nurture hope? If hope comes to us as something small, something that often we can barely perceive, how do we nurture it? How do we grow it? How do we invest in it? Well, I think one of the ways we do that is through God's word. In Romans 15, it says this, 
For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It is impossible to keep the flicker of hope alive inside without truth. We all need hope. Without hope, we have despair. And the only way to keep hope alive, the only way to keep the flicker of hope alive inside of us is with truth. Otherwise, our hope will be snuffed out by what we see and what we feel, rather than what we know. And there is scripture for every season of life. You can go to the word, you can go to scripture at any point, at any time, and find truth and find life. If you are angry, you can read Jeremiah. If you are disappointed, you can read Lamentations. If you are apathetic and you don't care about anything, you can read Ecclesiastes. It's all right there. And on any given day, you can read the Psalms and you will see the spectrum of emotions and seasons of life that accompany the Psalms. And often even in the same Psalm, you'll see a spectrum of emotion and life. It is so important for us to read the Scriptures, to remember the good God has done, His faithfulness and the works of His hands. And it's also important for us to remember His promises. We need to read Scripture to keep hope alive in order to read his promises, the promises he has made over us, the promises he has made particularly over you and your life, things that you have read in scripture before and seen and known and believed to be true, the expectation that good would come. You need to read scripture to remind you of the promises he makes to us and the promise of his kingdom. How do we nurture hope? We do that through the word, through truth. Who here has seen the, uh, the new James Bond movie, the, the Spectre? Has anyone seen the new one? <sighs> Not many. Okay, I'm going to spoil it for you, so that's good. He doesn't die, because um, he never does. Um, no, th- there's a scene in the new James Bond movie. There's a scene in the new James Bond I, I have to be careful when I talk about James Bond, because I, I, I can get angry. And so um, I'm not going to do that today. Mm-mm, no. I've done that before. Um, there's a scene in the new James Bond movie, okay? It's in the trailer, so it's not really going to spoil it for you. It's in the trailer. Where uh, Christopher Waltz, who's the, uh, the, um, uh, his enemy um, in, in the movie, when, when James Bond first meets Christopher Waltz for the first time, he, first, he meets the bad guy, and he's like a super evil bad guy because, you know, it's James Bond. And, um, and of course, he's German because he's it's James Bond. And so he, he meets Christopher Waltz, and Christopher Waltz in this, in this um, very, very German way, and you might have seen this in the trailer, he says... I am the author of all your pain, right? In that kind of German accent. I am the author of all your pain, James. You know, Mr. Bond. And, um, and he's, he's kind of like, he, he's revealing to, to Bond that everything that's happened in, the, in the, you know, the last few movies since Daniel Craig took over, uh, everything that's happened in those last few movies, all the bad stuff that's happened to him, you know, his family that got messed up, his home that got blown up, you know, like the, the amount of times he almost got killed, the, the girl that he loved um, uh, died, and um, all the bad stuff that's happened to him. He's done behind the scenes. Behind the scenes has been this you know, evil character that's pulled all the strings and made this all happen. I am the author of all your pain. Okay? And I think maybe we don't admit this to ourselves, but I think often we can feel like that, that God's like that for us. That God has been behind 
the scenes, pulling strings to cause us to suffer. And maybe we don't express it like that. Maybe we express it in other ways. But we can, there can be a stream of thought that just slowly, surreptitiously, under it all, when we experience pain and we experience suffering, makes us think, well, maybe God is doing this to me. Maybe God is doing this to me. We read verses like Romans 5. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, where it tells us that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Right? And so we read these verses. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And we can go away from that thinking that what God's doing is causing us suffering in order to produce endurance, in order to produce character, in order to produce hope. That God is the author of my suffering because he wants me to have better character. And because he wants me to be hopeful. But I don't think that what Paul is doing here is describing how hope is formed. I think what Paul is doing is he's saying, I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings because I know that even though the enemy intends this for evil, God is going to take it and turn it into hope. God is going to take this and he's going to turn it into good. God is going to redeem this. And so what he's doing in this verse is actually celebrating the redemptive work of God. Not explaining to us how hope happens. Think about it. Um, I am incredibly good at causing suffering to myself with my terrible decision-making, which happens on a daily basis. The stupid things I say and the enormous amounts of stupid things I do and think I'm pretty good at causing suffering to myself. Okay? Pretty good at causing suffering to myself. I'm also really good at causing it to other people too. Okay? And one of the things I've noticed in, in, the, in the 35 years I've had in this life is that you're all really good at causing suffering uh, to yourselves and also to me. And, um, and it's true for all of us. The, the people who we love most are, are the ones that are best at causing us suffering. The people who we care about, everybody causes everybody else suffering, right? That's what happens. That's what we do as part of being frail and, and being sinful and being messed up is that we cause ourselves an enormous amount of suffering and we cause suffering to happen to others as human beings, yes? I'm really good at causing suffering to happen for myself and you are all really, really, really good at causing it to happen to me too. But it doesn't just stop there because we also have an enemy, right? We also have an enemy, an enemy who is a vile and malevolent adversary, who is bent upon our destruction. An enemy whose will it is to kill, to steal, and destroy. An enemy who has an army of vile creatures and demons who are set upon chaos and evil in this world. Yes? That is true. So I'm amazing at causing suffering to myself. I'm incredible at causing suffering to others. And we're all good at that. We also have an enemy that is doing everything he can to cause evil and chaos in this world. And so God does not need to look down upon our world and say, well, there just isn't enough suffering here, is there? There just isn't enough suffering in this world, is there? 
gosh, these, these kids, they're just not learning their lessons. Why don't I go and create some more suffering for you all? To form some more character. There is no shortage of suffering opportunities in this world. God does not need to go about creating new ones for us. He can just wait five minutes and we'll cause them to happen to ourselves. But what about the story of Job, you say? Story of Job. The story of Job is not about how God deals with human beings. The story of Job is not about how God deals with human beings. God is not on the phone to Satan discussing what kind of cancer he's going to give you. You know, the story of Job is not about how God deals with human beings. The point of Job is, the point of it is that there is an incredibly faithful man. One incredibly faithful man in the midst of tremendous suffering. That's the point of Job. The point of the book of Job is, is to show us how one man endures suffering and, and honors the Lord and, and stays hopeful and stays um, fully obedient to God. The book of Job is there to tell us that even the righteous suffer, that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, and that karma does not rule this universe. The story of Job is also prophetic because it speaks about who Jesus is and was. It speaks about how Jesus, who was ultimately righteous and innocent, and how he would suffer. That's what the book of Job is. And when we think about, about Jesus' suffering, when we think about Jesus' suffering, we immediately go to the, to, to the passion story, right? So when we talk about Jesus' suffering, we immediately think about um, the cross. We think about the passion. We think about uh, how Jesus was tortured. That's what we think about when we think about suffering. But Jesus didn't just suffer as he died. He suffered as he lived. This is what we know of Jesus, that, that when his friend Lazarus dies, Jesus weeps. When Jesus um, comes into Jerusalem, he's, he, he looks over Jerusalem and he cries for the fate of the city. He weeps for the city. He weeps for his friend. He suffers great anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. The book of Hebrews says... In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. The book of Isaiah called him the man of sorrows. Jesus, who was perfectly human, utterly righteous, totally innocent, is called the man of sorrows. Why? Because how can you be human in this world and not grieve? How can you be human in this world and not grieve? Does Jesus ever doubt the goodness of the Father? No. Does he ever stop believing in the sovereignty of God? No. Does he ever lose hope in the coming kingdom? No, not once, never. And yet still he grieves. Still he suffers. Still he cries. And when God made the world, when God made the world, we see in Genesis 1, when God made the world and he made us, he declared that it was good. When God made the world, he declared that it was good. And we are made to expect goodness 
Because he made this world good and he made us good, we were made to expect goodness, to expect good things to happen, to expect beauty, to expect there to be meaning in our lives. So in this world, when we encounter evil, when we encounter the vile, when we encounter the meaningless, the senseless, and you just have to turn on the news, right? You just have to turn on the news to hear something senseless that's happened in another part of this country or another part of the world. When we encounter the meaningless, the evil, the vile, we grieve. It hurts us and we grieve. And we grieve because we were made to expect good. And when we encounter that that which is evil or meaningless, we grieve and it hurts. But grief... Grief is a part of hope. Grief is an essential part of hope. Why? Well, we cry because we loved. That's why we cry. We cry and we are hurt because we expected something good to happen and it didn't. We hurt because we expected a healing to happen and it didn't. Or we expected a resurrection and it didn't come. Or we expected something good to happen and it didn't happen. And so we grieve. Grieving is part of hope. If you hope, you will grieve. It is part of what it means to be human. And we grieve because we have hoped. The real question is, not why we grieve. The, question, the real question is, can we hope again? That's the real question. The real question is, can you hope again? Can you hope again? Can you hope again? Are we able to do more than just wishing to see the goodness of God? Are we able to do more than just wishing or wanting to see the goodness of God? Can we get to the place where we expect to see the goodness of God again? Where we expect to see God to move, where we expect to see him to heal, where we expect to see him to bring his candle, uh, to bring his kingdom. To light a candle is to curse the darkness. To light a candle is to fight against the darkness. To hope is to expect good again. To hope is to search for meaning in the midst of what seems meaningless. To hope is to see beauty in something awful. To hope is to find meaning in the midst of despair. To light a candle is to curse the darkness, and the Son of God being born to us as the light of the world is a curse to the darkness. It is the light that was born as a baby, fragile and helpless as a glimmer, that grew into a man, a man who was the king, who was leading his kingdom the coming of his kingdom, a full-scale assault on the powers of darkness. There is a new morning. There is a new morning that has dawned on this world. The light of the world has come. 
The light of the world has come and eventually there will be no darkness left. There will be light and only light. That is the hope we have in Jesus. He is the light of the world and he is the hope of the world. In Revelation it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus is the light of the world, and he has come. Why don't we stand?